You're listening to the Effective Developer Podcast. My name is Sebastian and this episode is another interview. And I'm interviewing Vlad A. Unescu. Vlad has founded two different developer tool companies and he's a former engineer at Google and VMware. And he's the founder of ShiftLeft. In this interview, we're going to talk a lot about productivity, of course, but also CICD tooling and especially a tool called Earthly. I really enjoyed this interview and I hope you will too. So let's get right into it. All right. And now I'm very happy to introduce uh, Vlad uh, Unescu to the show. So welcome, Vlad. And it's great that you can join us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show, Sebastian. So to start it out, how would you describe basically an ideal productive day? How does that look to you? What routines do you have? And basically, how does it need to look so that at the end of the day, you feel happy and fulfilled with how it went? Yeah. So my day these days um, is revolving around a lot of collaboration. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a repeat founder. And uh, in my current journey, I'm actually a solo founder. and. Most co-founding teams have uh, maybe a team of three people. One is maybe focused on go-to-market, one is focused on product, and one is focused on engineering. And we only have me. So I have to do all mm. these things in parallel. So my day is very split between these responsibilities. And I, I try to sort of, um, you know, do everything, but not everything at the same time. So So that's sort of the key for maintaining some sort of productivity. So mm -hmm. I, I wear all these hats. Um, I try to start my my uh, days with uh, morning meetings and maybe early mm -hmm. afternoon meetings. And then I leave about 50% of the time um, in late afternoon for uh, just focus time and trying to do some work done. And, um, you know, a lot of times it's, it's more challenging than it, you know, than, than you know, just splitting my time like that. Um, because there's also like a lot of company admin. So like being the solo founder means I have to do the things like, you know, the accounting, the legal side, the HR, payroll benefits, um, mm. and, and so on, and, and still try to um, contribute to, to our, you know, main mission, which is build amazing developer tools, right? So um, yeah, for the most part, I uh, try to delegate as much as possible. And, you know, I, I have this little matrix in my head you know what is important and urgent and i focus on those primarily but also i pair it with this idea of you know which of the tasks that i work on can be delegated as much as possible and there's this mm -hmm. concept of um so-called task relevant maturity that this guy andy grove ceo former ceo of intel came up with mm -hmm. and it, it's basically about how uh, mature a certain person is in accomplishing a certain task and based on that you can um, engage more or less with that person when you delegate something so so based on what how much I can delegate a certain task I might I, I try to delegate as much as possible but since I'm the only person currently in the company that oversees um, everything and has a good mental understanding of how things interconnect you know, especially when you go cross-functional from product to engineering and go to market and so on. Uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to delegate some of those um, cross-functional responsibilities. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I think a, a great day for me starts in advance with like 
enough planning. Um, I like to do my homework. I like to, um, you know, prepare, over prepare sometimes depending on the situation. And um, when, you know, the best day is when all that planning sort of comes together. And mm -hmm. um, even though maybe it's a challenging day, right? Like, I feel like if I've done my homework, then I, I sort of no longer feel, I don't know, um, like I don't criticize myself as much. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm in the best situation I can be in that moment, no matter what life throws at me, you know, startup roller coaster and all that. I'm, um, I can just focus on being the best version of myself and all that planning helps to, to drive that basically. So in, in a way, um, uh, the best day for me, it's strange. I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but it, I, I feel like if I'm the best version of myself is more important than being successful on that day necessarily. So I, it mm -hmm. takes that sort of, um, pressure away from, you know, trying to do everything on that single day or, or anything like that and just focuses me on, you know, Hey, what is humanly possible to do on this day and so on. So I, I feel like that's, you know, that's the best version of the day I can think of that maybe comes once a month or so it's, you know, most days are more sort of mixed and, um, like every, you know, knowledge worker out there, I think we have good days and maybe not so productive days. And I think that's just a fact of life. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think, uh, I, it's important to accept that as well. Like you, you can't sort of held, held yourself, um, you know, hostage to that mental ideal, sort of version of the day necessarily it's it's okay to to have less productive days as well and it's just part of the journey oh yeah absolutely and you touched on a lot of interesting points there um one specifically that i want to um dive into are there specific times like times of the day in which you um feel more productive or more focused maybe to work on a single thing because uh from my experience and from a lot of people that i talk to they say they're especially productive in the mornings and when all of the things that you know uh that the flow at you during the during the day did not hit you yet but i understand it's it's a little bit also challenging time zone wise because you're based in pacific time so you know that's much easier to do in europe when you say okay when you wake up early then basically you know half half the world is still uh kind of asleep so you you get a different shift of that but mm. do you find something for you that works uh well in this regard yeah exactly and you touched on a very important point there like time zone um so um before moving to the bay area i used to be a late person like i would stay up until i don't know 3 a.m or so i was definitely not a morning person and i don't think i am even now but i have a much more sort of regular routine these days and um because of that time zone aspect you mentioned mm -hmm. like if i were to wake up let's say at six and try to be uh focused in that time you know at six it's already 9 a.m um on the east coast and I have many colleagues on the East Coast and it's already busy, like the avalanche has already started basically. So um, I think it, it was just a, a matter of organic evolution of my schedule to, to shift towards having all the meetings, all the distractions in the morning, try to clear up as much as possible. And then in the afternoon, things get a bit more quieter as people go, you know, it's maybe uh, 6 p.m. or so on the East Coast it's it's also easier for me at 3 p.m pacific to to start you know focusing on certain things and um not be quite as distracted so um i would say my peak efficiency is probably the morning like um 
you know, especially if I work on something, it's more rare these days, but like if I have a, like an interesting idea, I want to implement like some code I want to write, uh, it's, it's usually on a Saturday morning, I have that idea. I do not even shower. I do not do anything just straight to the computer and write down, you know, everything I have in my mind. Somehow maybe the sleep helps me come up with some of those ideas. Uh, so I definitely feel like I'm most productive in the morning. Um, but yeah, just the schedule, the way time zones work makes me sort of work on those things typically more typically in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you get a chance or sometimes, because I know this helps a lot, especially when we're communicating a lot back and forth and kind of are inclined to get into this reactive mode uh, as opposed to focusing something to carve yourself out some, you know, an hour or two or 60 or 90 minutes or something of a focus time where you say, okay, now I'm going to close Slack and all of these uh, messages and just trying to, you know, focus on a thing. Although I could now be dealing with all of these, you know, cross-functional things and teams and people. Right. Exactly. Well, it's um, in my case, I have to block something in advance in my calendar mm -hmm. if I really want to focus on something. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually have a every single like every single Friday, um, I have most of the calendar blocked off for focus for focus mm -hmm. time. It, it just happens that most people don't um, contact you on Friday for some reason. I, I don't mm -hmm. know why that is. Uh, I guess people slow down at that point. And it's like the perfect time for me to sort of catch up on things. Um, maybe I have less, a list of tasks that I need to focus on. I didn't get to during the week. Um, so yeah, definitely blocking time on my calendar helps with that. I don't actually turn off Slack. I know many people do. I sort of find that um, working on something focused for maybe half an hour and then refreshing my mind, going somewhere else for like five minutes is okay. And then coming back, doing another half an hour. Mm -hmm. um, I know many people don't like that, or maybe they're distracted by the notifications. I do turn off, you know, just because um, I work with so many people on my regular day, I have to turn off most notifications anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't, I don't even have them enabled. I only sort of get them when I, when I check um, Slack. So oh, okay. it's sort of automatic that I don't necessarily um, get those. I see them on the screen, like the little sort of tab uh, mm -hmm. goes red on, on my screen, but it, it doesn't necessarily um, ping me. So yeah, I guess um, by default, I'm not, I, I try not to be distracted and, and you know, it's, it's okay for me not to turn off Slack for that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting because um, on the one hand, I, I read even some, you know, scientific research about that, how people are affected mostly with their phones and kind of like just the the fact that there is some sort of notification and kind of this re reminder in your head, okay, there might be something interesting right now. So this little, right. you know, this little nudge uh, there that this already steals some mental energy. However, I also talked to some people who said, okay, this doesn't bother them at all. It's kind of like, you know, they, they just kind of fully ignore that, um, which is interesting to me because I need to fully like turn off everything. And I sometimes, you know, even um, even although when I'm the only person in the room, I still use uh, earplugs or sometimes to just, you know, kind of close any potential distraction or whatever to just say, okay, now mm. I'm, you know, nobody yeah, could yeah, even yeah. technically disturb me. And um, that's kind of interesting how, how people deal with that uh, differently. But basically, yeah, I, I would say like whatever just works for you in order to like be fully focused to to not think about any uh, anything else and not to to not be distracted is yeah, definitely. Yeah, me. yeah, exactly. And I think there's also a spectrum of like how deeply technical the problem it yep. is that you're working on. 
because then it takes more mental context and mm. like you know the distraction can sort of like remove some of that context and then you have to get back into it and i think um there's a spectrum between like you know simple tasks that don't require a lot of context versus like very very complex tasks and like the the level of distraction like how long do you have to be distracted to lose all that context or some of it like you know important chunk of it and um yeah, I'm actually reading some papers these days about um, just productivity in general. Like um, mm -hmm. some of the things we do with our product, like improve developer productivity. And we're trying to figure out if there's some kind of scientific way to um, quantify some of that productivity gained or lost when, when you have like, you know, distractions. Or in our case, we're working with CICD. So like it's if, if your CICD goes faster for some reason, like... Um, you know, with other technology, it helps you to get like two to twenty x faster. Um, how does that turn into mm -hmm. uh, quantifiable productivity gained? Mm -hmm. um, you know, fr from the from the developer perspective, and like intuitively, we we know there's this thing of you know being in the flow, staying in the flow, and that's really important. Um, so so we have some kind of shared mental, intuitive understanding about this concept, but. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like I'm, I'm sort of looking at various papers these days about how that can be translated into actual numbers. Like, can you actually gain, you know, extra engineers in terms of like level of productivity when, when you uh, improve the workflow of your developers somehow? And um, yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting area. I think that there's been so much research in the past uh, 20 years or so that um, most people don't really know about. And uh, it's... Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting area. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, a lot can be done in, in this uh, space to sort of improve the way people work. The, the, this is so true and uh, interesting that you bring this up because that's also um, a topic I'm personally very interested in, especially these waiting times. So I usually uh, see it more from the really development workflow, like while your hands are on the keyboard. So more like the local uh, sort of inner loops of saying, okay, I have something running locally and how long, like literally how many seconds or milliseconds does it take to refresh everything to re see the result when you hit F5. Yeah. And um, that has a huge, I mean, I fully agree that it has a huge impact and that we're probably not even aware of the impact and the ramifications because it's easy to say, okay, now it's twice as fast. So, you know, I, uh, I'm kind of like twice as fast than before, but no, you're not. You're much faster than that because of, mm -hmm. well, we're humans and we just get distracted, right? So the, the difference between a two second waiting time and 10 seconds is not just 5x. It's much more than that because in 10 seconds, you're, you'll pull out your phone, you check that email and then you're like somewhere off and you, you know, won't come back until in half an hour or something like that. Yeah, and exactly. and that's super super interesting and yeah we it's a little bit unfortunate that we just now um are only to beginning to kind of understand the the impact that has that it's really i would say kind of challenging to quantify because otherwise it would be so obvious to say okay we really care need to care even more about the developer productivity and every you know manager and, or every company would understand it because of how precious uh, developer time is and then say of course you know you you folks should focus really well and 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 that's definitely an interesting topic so more specifically what what have you found in that research or is it more about waiting time or the focus and distractions and the kind of like context switch until you get back on track yeah uh, so yeah all of that yeah. 
So um, there are multiple levels of distraction, right? So one level is, um, well, developers work in feedback loops, right? And one feedback loop is maybe straight into the ID. Like as soon as you type a few letters, the um, highlighting maybe turns red or gives you some mm -hmm. indication whether you're writing the, the right thing. And that's like a very sort of millisecond, sort of hundreds of milliseconds sort of delay, right? And there is another delay of like, maybe there's some automated running of unit tests or something also in the ID that's maybe of the order of seconds. Then maybe mm -hmm. you run some test commands in your terminal. Maybe that's, I don't know, a minute or so. Um, maybe there's like the complete set of um, integration testing locally, again, sort of minutes. Then there's the CICD, maybe 10, 20, 30 minutes or so. So like all these different levels of feedback loops um, give you different results in terms of um, how effect, how much more effective you can sort of contribute to your, you know, to the work that you're doing. And um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm reading this little paper. I have it on my desk actually, um, like toward the unified theory of multitasking continuum. Like there has been this split between multitasking that takes sort of of the order of milliseconds to seconds. And then another piece of research that was more than seconds, you know? So um, this paper sort of unifies these two theories into a single um, sort of uh, theory that looks at the whole spectrum. And um, yeah, like it, it's interesting to, like we're, we're especially interested in the sort of minutes level of, of distraction. Like our, our technology um, gives you like speed benefits and we're looking at um, the typical numbers where if your, if your CICD, for example, runs 2.5x faster and you scale that uh, benefit on, on a, the scale of like a team of 30 people or so, um, what we're seeing is that you gain productivity in terms of like two or three engineers extra of mm -hmm. just from that CICD boost, right? And that can, you know, that can mean, uh, you know, many things like faster time to market or, um, like you're saying, sometimes the benefit is more than just the time saved, like less context switching. There's a certain level in your um, in your sort of CICD time where if it goes beyond a certain threshold, your mm -hmm. um, ability to work on multitasking, like your your um, inclination to work on multitasking is is sort of influenced by that. Like if, you, if your build mm -hmm. takes 30 minutes, you're not just going to sit there for 30 minutes looking at the screen, right? You're going to start work on something else. And that means, you know, when your build finishes eventually, then you have to context switch. And that has a, like a cost of its own. So um, uh, at a certain threshold, like if it's really fast, like a few minutes, for example, you, you might not multitask at that point. You would just stay in the zone, sort of um, work on the same thing and just get that sort of repeated um, a feedback loop that is much more sort of effective usually for um, you know pushing that single task forward uh, so mm -hmm. so yeah it's, it's I think um, I didn't quite yet find a very good um, connection between build times and gain productivity in a very clear quantifiable manner uh, but just mm -hmm. raw numbers sort of can can help drive some kind of a, an argument you know so um, I guess that's the level of uh, reading I've done so far anyway. Yeah, that that's really interesting because also like how one would even kind of conduct that research because you would even need to 
I don't know, make some sort of measurable result of, of looking over the shoulder of an engineer and, you know, once they're distracted and just, you know, as a regular working day, like saying, okay, you know, if you want to, if you normally now would check your emails, like then do and then see, you know, because uh, this is basically the outcome when you have to wait for uh, your build for 30 minutes or something. And and that's really interesting because it, it seems that there is a second, or should I say, a second bigger scale on the CICD level when we're talking about several minutes that um, I also see on a smaller scale on this, you know, very fast development time turnarounds where you say it's it's very similar to Usually I would say, so I have to object on the kind of minute, like one minute for unit builds runs for me, that's way too slow. So I usually say, tell people, okay, take it. So my personal, uh, personal threshold is around two, three seconds that it's still kind of like, you know, kind you're waiting for it. You know, it's like a synchronous method call you invoke and then you're like, uh, okay, now we're done. So you're, you're freeze until, and it's fine, you know, and at 10 seconds, you're actually starting to wander around or to, you know, check something, um, or something like that. And exactly. to keep it to keep it at that level, at least, you know, during development time has a huge, huge impact. And luckily, so I'm mostly in the Java space um, in the last years there have been a lot of really good development in um, basically development experience uh, tools and um, and platforms around that. So, for example, there's this Quarkus uh, tool for enterprise Java that, that has a really nice development mode where it can keep the whole thing running and it just reloads like instantly, like in less than a second. And the same yeah. if you uh, if you do your test run, exactly um, really well. So that's that's just and everybody agrees who tries this out. You know that's just a really nice uh, experience, to, uh, at least while you're coding. And yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely the same exactly. thing on CI/CD. A hundred percent. And I think um, the way we've developed these local productivity tools, where it, you know it can run unit tests very fast, it can reuse like. You know, in, in typical CI/CD, you you have to install a lot of operating system dependencies, and you know, inst install all the Maven stuff um, and, and so on. Sometimes very monotonically repeating, like sort of, um, you know, like especially with the newer age uh, CI/CD tools, like you you have a sandbox, like GitHub Actions and so on. You have a sandbox, and that sandbox is you know cleared every single time you run it, and so you have to repeat all those steps of reinstalling all those dependencies just to get to that final line at minute, I don't know, minute 12 or something where, mm -hmm. you know, your unit test fails. And then um, it's just kind of annoying that you have to repeat all that work that hasn't really changed from your last uh, commit. Um, and, and yeah, actually, you know, the stuff we're working on, on is caching all this, all that stuff that's sort of repeating commonly in CICD and um, is able to reuse that and only actually works on the stuff that um, you know, repeats the stuff that actually changed. So you can actually get to seconds of feedback uh, time with unit tests, even in CI/CD, which is kind of not not very common. Um, mm. But but yeah, like um, it's it's interesting how different the way we've evolved is that the tooling you use locally is very different from the tooling you would use in mm -hmm. CI/CD. Like the scripts you run and, and such, there is some commonality. You you still use maybe your I don't know your Gradle definition or uh, you know whatever uh, build tool you use, but um, underneath the the stuff that puts those things together, you know the Bash script or the CI/CD YAML, those are things that are not reused uh, locally and in CI, and uh, I, I think that's a problem with traditional CI/CD tooling. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, and let's let's talk a little bit about this, and then especially you know the the background of um, of the tooling and the stuff you're building, um, which I've also uh, uh, tried, and that's that's really really interesting. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's something about these uh, kind of immutable infrastructures, Docker containers, where you say, okay, it's very nice to have this repeatability to say, okay, I can build everything from scratch. So you know, for the listeners, think uh, think of something in the Java space. You know, you have your Maven or Gradle build. And then you basically, if you want to define all your build tools and not just say, okay, which exact Java version, Maven version, Gradle version we have, you could do something like multi-stage Docker uh, files and then just, you know, define it there and build it. But what what you will find out very quickly while you're downloading the internet, like each and every time, because you're starting from scratch after afterwards, everything is gone, which is, you know, both a pro and a con. So it's repeatable, but well, yeah, there you go for waiting. And um, this is then what what you would get if you would set up something and then run it every single time. So um, yeah, so why don't you give us a, a little bit of, of background what you're building there and what what Earthly is and what we can what we can get from from this? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, Earthly is both a CI/CD framework that allows you to run CI/CD tasks in any CI provider, such as you know all the traditional CIs. But it's also a CI platform in that it is itself a replacement for those traditional CIs. And um, the way we've approached Earthly is kind of like merging the ideas of a build tool that you use locally with the idea of a CI platform. And um, like I was mentioning, like historically, those two things were very separate. And with, with Earthly, you have the exact same uh, experience locally as in your CI. And it's all containerized, which means you get the same effects of you know running it anywhere you run it. Uh, that means you know when your build fails in CI, and you know traditionally maybe you would have to fix it by trying again and again to tweak your scripts and then commit over and over again to to GitHub to get to some level of progress. Well, um, those iterations are very slow and very frustrating. Um, with Earthly, you would typically just run. Uh, the build locally and with cache all the things that are maybe not changing from one run to another and and so when you tweak the script to try something else it would not re-download the whole internet um, over again it's kind of like docker layer caching on steroids in -hmm. that it's not just limited to images like docker docker files are but um, it's also applicable to say you know um, testing and outputting regular artifacts, not just images, you know, binaries and such, um, even integration testing. And when you put that together at scale, it may be even combining multiple repositories or, you know, large configurations in a mono repo setup, like then something magical happens, which is it only rebuilds the stuff that has changed. So like if you're working um, with a set of like, say, let's say seven micro microservices and you only change one of them, like the the system just automatically knows that nothing has changed in the other six microservices, just reuses the the computation from a previous run, and then uh, just rebuilds the the seventh one, and that gives you when you put that in CI, like it it sounds very, you know, local tooling has been much more evolved to give you fast feedback, and some of these, um, you know, working on something that actually changed is something common, you know, in all. All programming languages have their own tooling mm-hmm. to achieve that, but in CI/CD, that's never been done. Like uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of surprising that um, 
you had to choose between you know using something very traditional like say Jenkins to have the same environment you wouldn't have to redownload everything but you have less security because there's no isolation between pipelines yeah. versus newer tooling that is very sandboxed and you have to repeat everything over and over again uh, so you get the benefit of security but you you leave behind um, you know the performance which is very critical for productivity and um, earthly CI is is a way to bring those two worlds in together and give you the best version like it's both isolated but also does not repeat computation so uh, you get uh, the, the the best uh, parts of those two worlds yes no and I've so for the listeners let me actually summarize so my view how I see it and you you know tell me whether I'm correct because I've also tried uh, tried this out I've came across it from from using it in in one uh, of my client projects and it looked uh, very interesting for um, actually a kind of a uh, very complex build that we're doing there. I mean, we're talking about like a few hundred modules of a plugin structure uh, of some sorts. And um, how I see uh, Earthly or one of the things um, I like. So first of all, what you mentioned about this caching layers, this works extremely well. So I was, you know, pleasantly surprised when I tried out. So for the listeners, imagine you have something like a Gradle or a Maven build. Um, and then you do, you do it in a similar way, like a, a multi-stage uh, Docker build, but one where the caching just really works. You basically, you don't have to care about it. You don't, don't need to really define something yourself. You basically just run it. And then sure, the first time it downloads it. And then the other time it's extremely fast. It's it's really nice. Like from the experience, I'm always using Docker on, on Linux, but it's basically the same like running, you know, a Docker build where everything has been built already before and it's just caching and you're basically done um immediately from the steps that already have been performed so um this works uh, really nicely internally it uses this build kit uh, and you know this um directional graph and this black magic under the hood to get uh, everything there uh, qu quite nicely and this works again like surprisingly well even for a more complex build structure so i've also tried this where you have then multiple well think of if you've seen how a make file looks like you know these multiple targets and then you just define these and you define dependencies between them uh, and all of that gets resolved so that's that's quite nice um but one of the other things i i like in earthly it doesn't you know if, uh, at least so it seems to me it doesn't really reinvent the wheel for saying okay yet this is yet another ci cd server or something you know because how many more does the world need but more i see it more something like as glue between all of these tools that you are already use and that you're happy using right so there's no point in uh, rewriting your maven build structure if you're happy happy with maven and if you know it you know but basically well, who builds that together? So sometimes for my local uh, setup, I just write some simple bash scripts because, you know, that's easy. Just invoke all that stuff. Uh, but then, of course, you you do this again for defining a CI CD structure. And then in the past, you know, you would like click together these uh, Jenkins uh, jobs or now you define some pipeline as code or something like that. But the same issue remains like, you know, who like defines all of this and make sure these tools are installed and, and everything and how to test this which is another dreaded thing, you know, the, like these hundreds of commit and push patterns that you do to try again, CICD pipeline, try again, try again. And you, you know, you get this uh, funny Git history um, where you could actually or should actually try it out locally, which is another thing that I um, like a lot about when I tried uh, Earthly first is to say it, it just runs on your local machine if, you know, have some sort of container based um setup i mean on my machine it's always easy because i use linux and then it just does it and you know it works it works it has some a uh, build kit uh then kind of daemon container that is running 
And that works really nicely. And you can basically try the same thing that you would kind of submit as you think of it like uh, pipeline as code um, to your CI CD system, but try this out locally. So you don't get these hundreds of commits. You basically make these changes locally uh, that then sort of look like a you know, mixture between make files and Docker files, but it's all container-based. You can have these run commands and you really define in these sort of steps in between. Um, if you need some extra tooling, you do it in Docker base images basically, or you know, uh, do it or whatever you, you need there. Um, but this works like, as I said, surprisingly well. So this was really, um, yeah, po a very positive a surprise, especially what you mentioned with regards to waiting times. So that's yeah yeah exactly you you said it really well like uh so was this a kind of kind of fair summary or from my side technically yeah it, it is we get that reaction all the time like you know um like people are very excited about trying it out uh, we're at the beginning of the journey so we're not super well known but that is sort of changing every single day we've uh, grown quite a bit we've only been around for um three years and um yeah you know um yeah if if uh, the listeners are interested in it like um um, come check us out at earthly.dev and um, um, yeah, we're open source. So hopefully this is useful to some other people as well. Oh yeah. Yes. Open source. You can just like install it locally, try it out. You don't need to uh, sign up anywhere. So that's kind of interesting. And yeah, what it, what I wanted to ask before, but now we do it afterwards, uh, do you um, actually want to give us a little bit of a background of, about yourself because you've been working at kind of interesting companies and what were your like main interesting projects that you liked a lot in the past and especially what you're focusing on now and, and in the future? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, before Earthly, I built a company called uh, Shift Left. Um, I am one of the founders and I was the head of engineering in the early days. And um, uh, at Shift Left, it was actually recently renamed to quiet.ai, qwiet.ai. Mm -hmm. And uh, we analyze code for vulnerabilities and tell you whether you have any before you ship to production. And compared to traditional tools like that, we're like really fast, like um, it like 40 times faster than a traditional um, sort of tool that would run normally overnight. And so with quiet.ai, you can actually put it in your CI/CD modern sort of development stack. Before shift left, I worked at Google. I was in the search infrastructure team and then in the ads team. In search, I worked on some of the servers that serve the homepage and the search results. So mm. pretty critical pieces of infrastructure over there. And before Google, I worked on uh, RabbitMQ. Um, I built the Erlang client and then some um, optimizations for the way the routing takes place in the server. So like uh, the uh, the topic routing in, in RabbitMQ, I think I made it like, I don't know, 200 times faster or something with some optimization. So mm. it made it more viable for yeah, the use case of many, many sort of um, routing rules and, and all that. Um, at some point we got sold to VMware and I got to spend some time with VMware as well. Um, so so yeah, like interesting projects. Um, it's um, It's been a, like all kinds of sort of backend-y infrastructure -y things that I've worked on typically. I like these, um, you know, the the technology that serves the needs of mm -hmm. the greater engineering team for some reason. I don't know why, like it feels more fundamental to me and feels like it, it has like a very direct uh, need. Um, and um, yeah, I've, I've worked on like, um, you know, even actually at RabbitMQ, I worked on the first thing I wrote, worked on was like rewriting some make files. And that was mm -hmm. sort of the inception of like, 
hey, how do I make this better? And like for the longest time, I was always waiting for someone to just come in and invent Earthly. But mm -hmm. like, you know, a decade went by and nobody did. I felt like, you know, this was a gap. So that's why uh, sort of starting, to, uh, you know, thinking more seriously about pursuing this. Um, but but yeah, through, through my experimentation with, with make files, um, you know, found just the typical sort of, um, you know, difficulties uh, understanding the syntax and, and making it um, useful. But I really like them. Like, I really like the make files. I really like uh, uh, how it can be empowering to make them right and sort of serve the needs of the team. So um, I, I think it's an amazing technology, you know, especially given that it was made so long ago um, and it's still, you know, very much used today. So um, I've, I've definitely worked with builds quite a bit. Um, so, so yeah, hopefully that answers the question. Oh yeah, definitely, uh, definitely does. So, um, yeah, with regards to that, so what, what are the kind of like future outlook plans or your, you know, sort of personal goals that you have, um, with regards to where, where to take this further in the future or, you know, where to, where to take your work, your personal work there in the future? Yeah, well, um, I, I think. You know what I learned in my journey as as an entrepreneur is that I really like working on things where I am the target sort of user, mm -hmm. and I really like this idea of like heavily dogfooding your own technology. It gives you like this feedback loop that is very um, efficient, right? Like you don't have to go out and talk to ten people or so to understand whether what you're doing is right or wrong. You have some inner sort of compass to guide you. Um, you still have to talk to people, you know, to, uh, you know, get all those use cases right. And especially on areas where maybe you haven't worked with before, but, um, it, you know, it's just much more efficient for, especially for the basics. So, um, I, I, I want to continue doing that. You know, I like, um, sort of developer tooling as a space because of course I'm the target persona, like I'm a mm -hmm. developer at heart. And, um, you know, I think, uh, for us, the next steps are, you know, building an amazing CI/CD platform, and this is going to be our focus, uh, at least for the next five years, maybe ten years or more. But uh, I think um, there's so much that can be improved in that space that it's going to keep us busy for a while. There are various other ideas we have where to expand after that, but um, it's it's not necessarily our main focus right now. So, like, you know, starting with CI/CD is a difficult enough sort of um, mm -hmm you know, challenge. And, and I think that's, we, we can sort of bring in CACD version two, like the, the second age of CACD, if you will, where it's much more in front of what, like, you know, the current, current needs of the ecosystem, like, you know, the proliferation of open source, the mixed architectures that we're working on, we're working with these days, like the, um, you know, happy, ha having um, ARM-based devices from MacBooks, combined with x86 in production and then all the complications that come with containers which is like maybe the freedom to choose any programming language and then having difficulty putting all all of them together at the end of the day in production or in integration testing and all that i think these are challenges that many previous technologies have never really thought about carefully because they just didn't exist you know maybe 10 years ago uh, or maybe they were in, in a different shape or form so um just designing for the needs of today will probably keep us busy for for a while. Yeah, got it. And um, with regards to coding, so how does your 
So when you when you have the time uh, to code something, how does your workflow or your tooling look like? So what is a typical uh, coding setup for you? Yeah, you know, editors, tools, languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I really like Go. Um, my journey has been um, C plus plus, then Erlang, then Go, which is like a very strange combination. Maybe there <laughs> well there was some Python and JavaScript in between in there and some Java, but. Um, the number one language that I work with were, were these three. And I really like, um, you know, the fact that what Go provides with the Go routines, you know, the the efficient sort of threads, if you will, quote unquote, um, where it's you can spin up as many as you want and it's, it's really, really fast. Um, I like the fact that Go is kind of like a more efficient version of Erlang. Like it, it brings a lot of those good ideas except it's, it's faster and more performant and much more usable because it also has a really strong community and lots of like libraries and, and so on, which um, Erlang, I, I sort of missed that a bit when I worked with Erlang. Um, and so, yeah, that's on the language side. I use uh, VS Code a lot. I've always been an IDE person, even before good IDEs were on the market. It, it was kind of strange, like I was using, um, you know, most people, don't use, for example, NetBeans or Eclipse for C++ coding. Maybe it's really good for Java, but not so much for C++. And yet I was using that um, back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, made me like probably the, the odd duck in the room, like most people would use Vim or something. Mm -hmm. But um, after Sublime Text came in, I sort of um, really sort of, I had a good reason to use like a, a more visual ID um, and um, it just gives me superpowers with uh, I, I use multiple pointers all the time. I really like that feature. Um, and and yeah, these days I use a Mac for development. Mm -hmm. um, I have on my desk both a Linux workstation with dual monitor and a Mac. And I used to use more Linux for coding. Like maybe mm -hmm. five years ago, it was faster to use Linux for Docker stuff. Now mm -hmm. I think it's very similar even on a Mac, like the... the um, emulation is, is so much better. Like, you know, the mm -hmm. VM that uh, Docker desktop app runs is so much better these days, so much faster. I feel like there's not so much of a difference anymore. I still have my work, Linux workstation on the desk. Probably I haven't opened it in a, in a while. So it's probably mm -hmm. out of date with all the updates and so on, but it feels very difficult for me to let go. Sort of the, the idea that I would have to, I don't know, give, you know, a big piece of me uh, altogether with, with all the coding. So maybe that's more a sentimental reason that I keep it around. But um, yeah, these days, a, a lot of MacBook based uh, development. Um, well, when, when I have time, but um, yeah, it's so much easier for me to just use a single computer. Gotcha. And, and any other sort of like tooling or even hardware that you that you wouldn't like to miss, you know, or that is maybe also a little bit unusual that you use for your setup? Um, maybe the unusual about my the unusual part about my setup is that it's so vanilla mm -hmm. i like this idea where it doesn't take me too much time to switch computers or anything like that mm -hmm. so like i don't i don't configure too much um well you know i for example with vs code you can save your settings and then yeah. pass them over to another um installation easily um but most things i i just don't uh, try to keep it as vanilla as possible i find like um, the most productivity gain that I get is from just um, getting used to a certain setup, not necessarily having a custom setup. And so just keeping everything everything simple is, is good enough for me. 
And um, I know most developers like to configure a lot of their setup. And maybe that's the weird thing about my setup. It's just not very, not very complex necessarily. It's not very um, super configured. Um, so yeah, that uh, I think that's maybe um, something a bit different about how I work. Yeah, no, but fair enough because well, I'm definitely in the camp of uh, of configuring everything and optimizing just you know the hell out of everything. But of course, um, especially for you know pro uh, creating tooling that you provide, there's a big case to be made for just keeping everything vanilla because you just like go and you know can test it just in a very regular way and you don't have to you know tweak some things to adapt it to your workflow flow. Or when you um, talk to a colleague or say, hey, let me try this out or something like this. So you're just used to saying, okay, this now would be the default setup or the default like shortcuts, config or whatever have you uh, have you there, um, which yeah. yeah makes definitely makes a lot of sense to say. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Like even with my Linux setup, I try to use the most popular sort of um, the most beaten path because that's that has the most support, I guess. When you when you Google for something, find, find like a stack admin or stack overflow sort of uh, answer um, it's just easier to to work with that i have i have some colleagues that just change um the distribution every few months like going to arch then gentoo then you know um all these other sort of more exotic flavors yeah. and um i i, I would be lost like it's <laughs> so much work to maintain that like every every distribution comes with its own oh, that's that's definitely true so which distribution are you using so I'm I'm in Ubuntu, mm -hmm. um, and I've used that for the longest time. Um, and um, I went back and forth between like um, you know GNOME and KDE, mm -hmm. and and um, yeah, I think ever since um, the new update to GNOME, I sort of abandoned that. Um, I, well, new it probably was like I don't know seven years ago or something, <laughs> but like mm -hmm. something changed in in between, and, and I sort of um, went away from from GNOME at that point, switched to KDE. And then uh, nowadays, I'm just with a sort of default Ubuntu provided um, um, manager, which mm -hmm. um, I'm forgetting which one it is, but it's like the, the most vanilla one again, sort of the most standard one. Yeah, I, I can understand that because I was using a long, long time ago, I was using Ubuntu. And also well, once they did, I think it was around this time frame, this change to GNOME where then everything looked differently and they, you know, double um, at uh, assign some key spaces where then you had issues with your IDEs and I'm like no oh, no yeah. no and, exactly yeah. that was such a painful time like everyone was upset about it right and uh, it just didn't work with the way it used to work and and there were less settings like even if you wanted to sort of make it work the way it used to it was mm -hmm. harder because the, mm -hmm. the settings yeah. were not exposed and um, yeah like you um, had to click around and something so this was not Kind of like yeah. not the Linux way that I I like to think yeah. about. Exactly. No, that's that that's interesting. Yeah, and then afterwards I became one of these weird Arch Linux uh, people. That then you oh, know yeah. that's that's my <laughs> setup. But it was also so my benefit of that was I switched while I was a computer science student. You know, and as a student, you have time, you know, and it's fun to play exactly. around and to destroy your whole environment and spend the weekend uh, replacing it again. But now it's perfect because I everything works just for me and the system does only what I tell it to do and nothing more. That's I, oh, I nice. love that about the archway. You just install it and there's nothing there. And I think that's great because then there's nothing that would annoy yeah, yeah, yeah. me. So then no if I magic. want it, then I tell it to <laughs> set it up something. Yeah, 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 exactly, yes. exactly. I think that's important about like, uh, you know, systems and like, in software engineering in general, like the more magic it has, like, yeah, I think it's important um, 
to avoid black magic in general with like it's easier to understand a system if, when it doesn't do anything sort of automatic or hidden in some way just having clear understanding of exactly what something does um you get the you know the, the same effect every time um it's it's a nice little principle that i like yes so with regards to any interesting content or are there any interesting books or blogs or papers that you read with regards to productivity or from an engineering perspective yeah um well i i can tell you some of the papers i'm um, reading right now actually i can tell you so like there's one called um impact of task switching and work interruptions on software development processes by um, Tregubov, Lane, and Bohm. So that's an interesting one that I'm reading right now. But um, really from an engineering perspective, um, I, I really like this book um, called High Output Management, actually um, by this guy from you know the Andy Grove person I mentioned, um, the former CEO of Intel. It's not so much about productivity, but more about um, how to manage an engineering team. And it comes at it from like, like a very engineering sort of um, a background. Like this person is, you know, approaches this problem as an engineering problem and looks at it from like inputs and outputs perspective and um, how the team functions, what, how, what are the motivation drivers. It's a very popular book, I think, especially in the founder circles. It's, it's been sort of very recommended, especially in the 90s. It was like the hottest thing ever. I, I kind of, um, maybe it's pretty well known already, but like, I, I really like, um, um, you know, the, the way I, I learned a lot, you know, especially on the engineering management side, um, how to how to think about things um, when it comes to the productivity of the engineering team and, uh, you know, the motivation side of things. and to deal with the sort of common um uh, common challenges that come come with the job basically yes that sounds very interesting so now about yourself so where can people find out more about yourself what you do and then also about the earthly tool yeah so about myself uh you can go to vladaionescu.com so v-l-a-d-a-i-o-n-e-s-c-u.com and then uh, yeah on there i write about like engineering culture and about startups and if you want to learn more about earthly go to earthly.dev yes and i really recommend folks to give earthly a try and yes vlad thank you very much for the interview and for everybody listening well thanks a lot for listening yeah thank you sebastian for for having me on the show